You're listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. Uh, good morning. I'm excited. My name's Todd. Um, I, am, I have the privilege of being on the teaching team here um, at Anthem Church, and I'm excited to introduce you guys to Nehemiah and get going on that. Nehemiah is um, just like me. He's just a guy. He has a job. He goes to work. And he loves the Lord. Um, and that's, that's me. I'm not a priest. I'm not on staff. Uh, like Nehemiah, he, he's not of a priestly calling. He's not a king. He's not a prophet. He's just a guy who have, basically we're going to be reading his journal for the next 13 chapters. He just is a guy who left a legacy by writing notes to himself about what God was doing in his world. Maybe some of you who are journalers can relate to Nehemiah that way. You like to write down what God's doing. You want to remember um, Nehemiah is that guy. He's left us a journal. And so we're going to be going through a series this fall called Under Construction. It's going to be involving the book of Nehemiah, and then we'll do the book of Malachi at the end of this semester. So those two books, they, they represent the chronological end of the Old Testament. This is the last events that goes on in the Old Testament. So let me get you up to speed where we are before we dive in. We're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. Um, so you might want to spend this whole time trying to find that. <laughs> it is in the Old Testament, and uh, it's before all the wisdom books. So if you get to Psalms, you've gone too far. But uh, yeah, so while you're looking for Nehemiah, <laughs> that's N is in Nancy, Nehemiah, so <laughs> if that aids your search at all. Um, let me get you up to speed. So Jerusalem has a long, people of Israel have a long history of idolatry and then suffering the consequences realizing the error of their ways, repenting, and then coming back. And there's a long cycle of this as you read through your Old Testament. This happens over and over again. And so where we're at right now, when we begin the book of Nehemiah, is that Jerusalem is broken down. The walls are broken, the gates are burned, because 141 years ago, before this book starts, Babylon came and just ravaged Jerusalem. And the reason that happened was that Jerusalem had turned back Israel, Judah specifically, the southern part of the people of God, had turned back to idolatry, and they refused to hear the prophets. They refused to listen, and so God sent Babylon to discipline his children. And for 141 years, they have been living in the consequences of sinful decisions. And so where they're at is they're living in the consequences of the past bad decisions. Maybe some of you are in that spot right now. You have things going on in your life that are a product of something that happened in the past. And for a while now, it's just been that's what life is now. It's just what things are. This thing happened, and now as a result of that, things are just broken. The walls of Jerusalem were literally broken, but the people who lived behind those walls were broken too. They had stayed broken for 141 years. Things were bad, and people had just kind of gotten used to it or in their earnestness wanted to do something but had no idea what to do. Maybe that's where you are today. Stuff is broken in your life, a relationship, a habit that you just got into a while back, and now it's just, it just is what it is. And so the question that Nehemiah wants to address, at least on this early part in these first two chapters, is can broken things be rebuilt, or is it just the way things are now? Is that where we're at? We just, you just figure out how to live with broken stuff? Is that the plan? We just figure out, well, this is, we just... Don't talk to him. We don't talk about that subject. We don't do this. We don't do that. We just manage the brokenness. Is that our strategy? Or can those things be rebuilt? Is there hope that that's not always the way things are going to be? 
That's the, that's the feeling that we're at as we enter into Nehemiah. That's the question that's on the hearts of people who love God. Is this the way things are now, or is there any hope that things can change? So hopefully you found Nehemiah at this point. If you haven't, I, that's plenty of an intro, so that's, you're bad. You, you have a smartphone. I bet you could find it. Um, and if you don't have a smartphone, just flip around. You'll find it. Okay, so Nehemiah chapter 1. Uh, we're going to go through chapters 1 and 2 this morning. We're going to kind of blitz through. Now, just to preface, I'm not going to cover every possible you know, dust of gold that you could mine out of this thing. So, so join a connection group. Really, that's where you get to cash some of this stuff out. There's only so much you can do in 35 minutes, and I want to hit the high-level meta importance of things of the passage. So if you leave the sermon being like, well, I wish you would have touched on this, join a connection group and touch on it there. Be happy to uh, cash that out and amongst a group of people who are all trying to figure this out together and apply it. So anyways, uh, Nehemiah chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah is in Susa, which is actually not related to Babylon. It's actually the capital of Persia, because Babylon decided they wanted to rule the world and destroyed uh, Jerusalem and Judah. But then the Medes and the Persians came along and decided that they would rather rule the world. And so they took out the Babylonians. And so uh, if you read the book of Daniel, you see, actually see this transition take place. He's under Nebuchadnezzar, and then uh, Darius and the Medes and the Persians come and take over um, under his son, Belshazzar. And so you actually see the transition of empires. But so now at this point, they're still broken. It's been 141 years. Remember, I told you that. It's been 141 years. So when Nehemiah hears this news, he's just kind of asking, like, how are things going? And uh, his brother, Hannah and I, reports it honestly. He's like, it's bad. <laughs> it's bad. Some of you guys need to learn a lesson from Hannah and I, like, and just tell it like it is. Like, don't do the church foyer thing. Be like, fine, fine. Everything's fine, fine, fine. <laughs> is it, though? Is th- are things fine? Like, it's okay to be a Christian and just say things as they are. You can just say it's bad. And without trying to draw attention to it, you don't have to go on some superlative thing where everything is the worst and blah, blah, blah. But you can just say things as they are. And so Hannah and I just reports the news. It's not good. And did you see Nehemiah's response? He's totally broken by this. He just falls apart, which is strange because this has been true for 141 years. This is not the first time. He's not like, what? (laughs) This would literally be like if I was like, hey, did you guys hear the news? Abraham Lincoln's been shot. And you just like fell apart like a puddle on the floor. You're like, oh, what are we going to do? And, you know, and then I'm sitting there, you know, just like, uh, yeah, yeah, I know that. And you're like, why aren't you more upset? It's like, I've had some time to get over it. <laughs> I think we'll be okay. <laughs> so this is a strange response, right? Everybody else knows what, what was just reported to him. Everybody knows that this is true. But it hits him in a new way. And so that's my first point today. This morning, I'm going to walk through this passage and to give us some organization we're going to use six C's. Uh, it just happened. Like, once you're four or five into it and you're seeing all C's, you feel this pressure to like, make the last two points start with a C. So at some point, it was my fault, but it didn't start out that way. Um, 
so the first, just giving you insight into the mind of a preacher. So <laughs> I don't, we don't always try to do this. It sometimes just happens. Uh, so the first point is concern. I'm going to put that up on the slide there. Concern. Somebody has to be concerned about this. Everybody kind of felt the weight of the brokenness, but nobody had like quite yet just got broken the way Nehemiah did. And so Nehemiah is familiar with this. Maybe there's stuff in your life that you've just gotten used to. And maybe it concerned you back when it first happened, but it's just so like what life is now that it doesn't really concern you anymore. You know what I'm talking about? Like I wrote down some examples, like maybe particularly family relationships, you and your mom, you and your dad, you and your sibling, some kind of thing that just happened. And now it's just kind of what things are now. It's just what the relationship is. And maybe it bothered you, but your strategy has been more like, well, I don't like that it bothers me, so I'm going to try and pretend like I don't care what you think or or whatever the thing is, you try and make it go away, but the concern has kind of numbed itself. It's not really like at a, at a point anymore. Um, maybe some sinful habit you got yourself into. You did something that you never thought you would find yourself doing, and then it kind of got easier to do it a second time because you did it the first time, and nothing happened. You didn't get struck by lightning. So you're like, well, I don't know. Like, I don't really like it. I'm not, I, don't, I don't wish this was my life, but it just is what it is now. I'm, I just struggle with this, and it's just part of who I am now. And there's no concern. There's no, like, this is urgent. There's no, like, I need to address this right now. It's just, it's, it's happened for so long. It's just become part of who you are. It's gone through your veins long enough that it's the air you breathe. Or maybe, like, you know, for some of you, maybe it's your roommates. <laughs> and, like, those dishes just sit on the counter <laughs> all the time. And it's just it's gone on for so long now. And nobody ever said anything. <laughs> but it's still there. Like, you still don't like it, but, like, you just didn't address it right away, and so now it just kind of lingers. It's like this ongoing tension between you guys, like, or the thermostat wars, you know, that take place, like, in the house, you know, like, I'll set it, and I'll wake up early, and I'll reset it, and just the back and forth. Or maybe it's, like, your coworkers, you got to know somebody, but you didn't tell them you were a Christian, like, within the first, you know, few conversations, so now it's kind of weird <laughs> that you're, like, months into this relationship, and they have no idea that the most important thing in your life is that you worship Jesus. And so you're like, oh, man, I just got in this habit of, like, just, I wanted to be their friend. I wanted it to be natural, but I never had the courage to make it supernatural, so now it's just weird. And if I tell them I'm a Christian now, now I have all this weird, like, thoughts of, like, well, will they not be my friend anymore? It just, it's gone on long enough that there's a problem, and there needs to be concern. So what we learned from Nehemiah initially is that all that stuff, whatever that thing is for you, if it's been going on for a while, pray that God would do what he did for Nehemiah. And, like, you'd become concerned enough. It would move you. And like, he falls apart at this news. I mean, like, literally, it'd be like hearing that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. That's almost exactly 140 years ago, give or take. And, like, in falling apart at it. But because the consequence, he's still living in the consequences of that world. He lives in Susa, not Jerusalem. There's a reason, because their past sin has caused his people to be there. But just having concern isn't enough, right? Just being concerned about something isn't fixed. It doesn't build a wall. It doesn't make anything better. So let's move on. Verses 5 and 7. Look what Nehemiah does. So he starts to pray here, and he's like, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Concern isn't enough. It needs to move to confession. 
That's the second point. That's your second C for this morning, confession. Did you see in there that Nehemiah owns it? Do you see how, how he talks about it? Was, was Nehemiah there 141 years ago? Is it, was it his fault that he's in Susa? Did he do that back then? No. But he's in Susa, and he's looking back, and he's confessing the sins of his people. And not just like that slimy kind of connection group way where you like confess sin by throwing somebody else under the bus. <laughs> and yeah, you, those of you who are laughing have seen somebody do that before. Those of you who aren't laughing, get in a connection group. It's really fun. <laughs> but like, he's confessing it, not on their behalf. Like, oh. <laughs> he's, he owns it. He identifies with them. And he's like, you know what? <clears throat> That's me. And this, this would be like, for those of you, like my daughter Penelope looks back and sometimes she'll be like, I just wish Eve hadn't eaten the apple. What's her deal? <laughs> it's like, yeah, me too. That, that did kind of throw things off a bit. Um, I was like, but the arrogance of assuming that you would have done it differently. I mean, do you hear the assumption in your language when you're like, oh man, Adam and Eve screwed it all up for all of us? Yeah. Yeah, they did. And, and the assumption is like, oh, if I was there, I would have totally done it differently because I'm a better person than Adam and Eve are. Are you though? <laughs> just like take a moment and reflect in your head on some of the stuff you've thought of doing. Not the stuff you've done, but the stuff you thought of doing and had to restrain yourself from doing. Are you a better person when you consider the things that you've thought of doing and didn't do? <clears throat> Nehemiah owns the sin of his people by identifying with them and being like, you know what, I'm with them, and for better or for worse, as they go, I go. And he looks back and says, I'm no better than them. Even me and my father's house have broken your commandments. So some of that is like somebody just has to own this thing, right? Just being concerned isn't going to get anything done. You have, somebody has to confess and like enter in and become part of it. And either just confess your direct responsibility in the thing you said to that relative or the, 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 the slip you made on that sin that started this whole trajectory. You just need to own it. <clears throat> or in, even in Nehemiah's case, just owning the fact that you've been okay with it for this long. <laughs> like, I mean, really, just like the fact that Hanani shows up and tells him, and he finally is broken. Like, this has been true all of Nehemiah's life, and it's only now hitting him. Maybe that's something to, like, confess and be like, I've just been okay with brokenness for so long now. That in itself is a problem that I need to own. And it reminds me of uh, back in the early 1900s, I think it was Time Magazine sent out a thing to the most prolific writers at the time and asked just a simple question, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? And just asked a, a great variety of different people wanting to know like, what their thoughts were. You guys write a lot. You think a lot. What do you think is wrong with the world? Why are things broken? Why are things the way they are? And one of my favorite responses is uh, one of a G.K. Chesterton. I have it up on the screen here. He wrote back this very simple letter. <laughs> this is the most, a guy who writes books full of words asked one simple question. What is wrong with the world? Dear sir, I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That's the attitude of Nehemiah. I am part of whatever this thing is wrong. It's not just <clears throat> everything out there is broken. I'm somehow got everything together. And if you guys could just figure things out, that would make my life a lot easier. Okay, guys? You ever have that? You ever feel that way? Like if I was in charge of this thing, things would be a lot better. The, the, the confessional attitude that begins to actually rebuild things, has to start with an attitude of, like, I'm part of the problem, so I'm going to be part of the solution. You have to own it. You have to be part of it. If you're only concerned, it leads to finger-pointing. Like, I'm very concerned about this. Nate, you should do something about that. <laughs> you should do something about that. You should, ever, you should do something about that. Sorry, Nick. Uh, not Nate. My bad. 
I pointed at you, and then my brain was like, that's not right at all. It's Nick Parker. <laughs> Nate's sitting over there. <laughs> Nate, you're also part of the problem, by the way. <laughs> just saying, you don't get an escape just because I gave him the wrong name. <clears throat> so, concerned and confessed. You've, you've owned it, part of it. But that's not enough either, right? Like, just being concerned and, like, owning it. Like, okay, okay, all right. I'm in. Let's, what do we do? That's where the next part comes in. Verses 8 through 11. Look at the next part of his prayer. He says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Exactly what happened. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts, or, yeah, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. There are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. So the next thing that needs to happen is, the third C is commitment. There needs to be a plan. What's the plan? Some of you are great prayers. The moment something bad happens, you go to your knees in prayer, and that's awesome. <clears throat> and, uh, but there's never a plan. Like, so what are we going to do? And you're like, I don't know. I just feel, like, isn't feeling bad enough? Like, isn't that get the ball rolling? It's like, it does get the ball rolling, but where's it rolling to? What's going to happen? What's the plan to do something about this? And we see in Nehemiah that he's not just praying. He's asking for a plan. He's trying to figure out what would I do about the situation? How can I contribute? What can I lend to it so that the walls of Jerusalem and the people of Israel are no longer a broken people without a city, without walls. And so some of you, um, you see problems and you demand solutions, but you want to make it like, like somebody else's problem. So you go to Stan and you're like, Stan, we should be doing something about the homeless. He's like, yeah, what do you want to do? And we're like, I don't know. I wanted it to be your problem, Stan. <laughs> like, because you care, you're concerned, and you confess that you're like, it's not right. These things aren't right. Somebody should do something, Stan. And Stan, like, in good conscience, can turn around and be like, what do you want to what do, you do, Anna? Like, what do you want to do? And you're like, I don't know. I just, think, I just think somebody should do something. And so you want to make, you see the problems, but you want to make it somebody else's problem. You don't actually have a plan for it. You just kind of feel like, well, somebody should do something. And so some of you need to have a plan. You need to think through, well, what could I do? Like, if you, if you once you, some of your college students, you get into the business world, you can go to your boss with problems as long as you also come with solutions. But don't just come to your boss with problems, because the first thing they will tell you is, what's your solution? And until you have one, don't knock on my door again. Not because they're bad bosses, but because they're like, I can't spend all my day listening to all your gripes. <laughs> like, what is your solution to the problem? I'm happy to hear that and happy to empower you to enable that. What's your plan? You have to have a plan. And so some of you are who rush to planning right away, the problem, you have a plan. You need to go back to the second one and actually have some prayer that goes, accompanies your plans. You just think your plans are going to fix everything. You don't actually turn to God and ask him for wisdom in that. Because, guys, we, we, we can break things by accident, right? But walls don't get built by accident. Nobody accidentally builds a wall. Nobody accidentally builds a fortress that is indomitable. <laughs> Nobody accidentally happens upon that. But I break stuff all the time. People break stuff by accident. So you have to have a plan because you will not rebuild by accident. And so for other of you, you guys have problems and you kind of have solutions. You start thinking through stuff, but they're just not realistic. Like you want to just solve everything in one fell swoop. 
And so when it doesn't fix everything, you're super discouraged. You're like, well, it didn't work. And just you go in too hot, you just come in hot, and you're just like, we're just going to fix everything right now. And so I have this uh, chart that Stan taught me a while back, actually, when we were trying to build a building back in Cedar Falls for a church. And this, I find it applies to everything, uh, kinds of things, though. Like, it's, uh, it's this chart, and it's about counting the cost and about coming up with, um, do we have the slide for that? There's a, there's a chart that I have with, there's three basic things there. Is it up there? I can't see. Okay, sorry, I'm looking at a blank screen. So, so basically, there's three moving pieces, right? There's... Well, we all want stuff to be cheap, we want stuff to be fast, and we want it to be high quality. That's what we want things to be, right? But here's the thing, you have to pick two. You cannot have all three. You can't have all three. You, you can, if you try to do something that's cheap, it doesn't cost you very much, and really quick, like you can put up a cardboard wall <laughs> really quickly and for very little money, but when the Persians come, I bet they run over it. <laughs> I bet that wall doesn't hold back. Or if you want to do something cheap, like I don't want it to cost me very much, but I want it to be really high quality, you're going to have to put a lot of sweat equity and it's going to take a long time. You cannot build that wall quickly. You cannot build a very high quality, cheap wall quickly. It will take time. It's going to cost you your time. Or if you want a very quick, very high quality wall, you're going to have to pay a professional a lot of money to do that. So you just have to pick what, what's your plan. And does it have like a realistic strategy? <laughs> does it take into account that you can't do everything at once? So you just have to literally count the cost of which one you're willing to concede on. You can be like, well, I want to do it cheap and high quality, so if it takes a while, it takes a while, but I'm committed to it. But you just have to know which cost you're willing to pay. Does that make sense? So when you're coming up with plans, take that into account, that you can't have it all. We're just people. <laughs> And you have to take into account these things as you plan so that you don't exasperate the people you're asking and that you don't even just discourage yourself by the time you get to the end of it and you're like, well, why did it take so long? It's like, well, because you try to do it cheap and high quality, and that's fine. You just have to be ready to pay the fact that it's going to take a while to do something like that. Moving on to chapter 2. So Nehemiah is the cupbearer, right? He's in a position that he can leverage, and so he's asking for favor with uh, Xerxes or Artaxerxes. Xerxes isn't his name, by the way. It's just like Christ. It's not his name. It's the title. It's like saying Caesar. It's just a, it means like King, Presidente, El Presidente, depending where you live. Um, and so it's just a title. But this guy is in his 20th year of his reign, and so he's there. And so he's like, okay, I'm in a position that I know this guy who could do something. He's already planning. When he says I'm cupbearer, that's not just in passing. It does give you insight into what his profession is. He's basically like the next guy in line. If somebody's trying to kill the king, he would poison the wine. And so you have to have somebody drink it so you make sure the wine is good. So he's got a pretty good job as long as nobody's trying to kill the king. <laughs> if somebody's trying to kill the king, it's kind of a high-risk job you got there. But uh, it's chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Look what he kind of starts to go. So in the month of Nisan, so just to give you some context, this is three or four months later. So he's been fasting for three or four months. They will end up building the wall faster than it took him to pray and fast about it. He thought, prayed, and planned longer than it will actually take to execute the plan. Just to give you some insight into this man who was so broken that he just invested himself wholly in this. And so he says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, again, not his name, just a title that Persian uh, kings would have had, uh, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. So the rule before the king was be happy. He's the king, don't bum him out. <laughs> you know, like, he's got enough to do, don't bum him out. So Nehemiah has been trying his best to, you know, have 
church foyer face in front of his employer and be like, fine, fine, everything's fine, everything's great. And because he doesn't want to die, because <laughs> that's the rule. Don't bum the king out or he will kill you. Um, but at some point, it's like a beach ball, you know, at a swimming pool. Like, you can try and keep that thing underwater. <laughs> and you might be successful for a while, but you will get tired before the beach ball does. <laughs> like, it wants to come up. Like, it's, it's the nature of it. And Nehemiah has this burden that wants to come up. And so eventually, it just, it's on his face. And he's sad. And the king asks, what's going on, man? Like, you're, you're sad. It's, this is sadness of heart. You're not sick. You don't have a cough. You're not moping around. So what's the deal? So here's the fourth C that you're going to need to rebuild things, courage. (laughs) And that sounds like a funny thing to say after he says, I was very afraid. But what you need to know is that being afraid is not a bad thing. Being afraid is not a sin. Like just being afraid of something is not a sin. It's a normal, natural reaction to things. But allowing your fear to drive you can be a sin. When your fears tell you what to do and how to do it, now you're all sitting in the realm of sin, or it's, it's cowardice, which is a biblical category of sin. I remember um, a few months back when we were going through Exodus, Atticus was sitting in the second row there, and he was going to, if you guys remember, we had the firstborn sons read from the passages, and Atticus had committed he wanted to do it, but in the moment, you know, you're like looking at the stage, and you're seeing the lights, and you're like, oh man, <laughs> like I'm about to do this. And he was kind of having a panic attack, however much an eighth, eight-year-old can. <laughs> and uh, I sat down with him, I was like, Atticus, it's okay that you're afraid right now. Be a man and go up there and be afraid and do it. Like, and I was like, and nothing's riding on it. If you don't, I still love you. There's re- literally nothing riding on it, but you know you want to do this. And before now, you were committed to it, but now in the moment, you're afraid. You're looking at it. The moment's big. What happens? How does the king react? What happens from here? I don't know. For Atticus, is like, I don't know what's going to happen here, but he, he acted. I was like, play the man. Just what would a man do? He'd go up there and read it, even if he was scared. You'd be afraid and do it, and that is courage. If you're not afraid of something, that doesn't really require courage to do it. So some of you, like, the first moment you feel fear in you, you're like, well, maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. Maybe it's not supposed to be right. Maybe it's not supposed to be this way. If you feel afraid, that's a very normal way to feel in a situation where you're about to do something big. That's actually a good response. It's bad if you allow it to be like, well, maybe I shouldn't do it. I don't know. I'm afraid. I don't know what to do. He had taken, he had taken, taken's not a word, (laughs) he had taken three or four months to pray and fast. He knew what to do. He just needed the courage to see it through now. And some of us just need the courage to do what we know God's calling us to do. Like Joshua, uh, on his knees praying, Lord, I don't know what to do with these people. They're crazy. He's like, get up. Stop praying. There's sin in the camp. You know what to do, Joshua. This isn't a, you need to talk to me in prayer about what to do thing. You know what to do. Get up and do it. You just need the courage to do it. And so, verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, if I've been doing a good job, you think I'm a good employee, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Nehemiah knew how long. He knew how to answer that question. What do you want to do here? He had an answer. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. What we're going to learn later is when the king asked, how long do you need off? 
Uh, it's like your boss, like you come to your boss and be like, oh, I'm just really bummed out about, you know, things back in my hometown. You're like, oh, well, how long do you want off? And he's like, I have 12 years. <laughs> I've done the math. <laughs> and I can build a wall in 52 days, but to rebuild a society, it's going to take longer than that. So 12 years. So he, he knew how long. He knew how to answer that question. He didn't compromise. And he's like, I know it's 12 years, but I should probably say six. Because <laughs> I want to get a yes out of this guy. <laughs> If your goal is just to get people to say yes, you'll end up compromising what you've already committed to prayer and to planning. You know what the plan is. You know what it will take. You've counted the costs from that chart before. You know what it will take to build this wall. And so in the moment now to compromise just to get a yes, you need longer than six years. You know that. So don't in the moment, just ask. Just answer the question. He said how long? And so he says 12 years. And that's really hard. I don't know if you've ever been in that spot where somebody asks you a very clear question about something spiritual or something that's going to be costly, and you kind of have that moment where you're like, do I say what's true, or do I try and spin it in a way so that they'll agree to it? That's really hard in that moment. And did you catch his other line? He said, oh yeah, and by the way, I want you to pay for it. <laughs> did you catch that's just what he said. He's like, can you just, like, can I loot your forest and use that to build the fortress to keep you guys out? <laughs> and, and he's like, oh yeah, and I'm probably going to need somewhere to live, so could you build my house too? <laughs> Did you catch that? Like, that's what he asked. Oh, my word. <laughs> like, that's a, big, that's a big prayer and a big ask of a guy whose whole foreign policy is opposed to what you're asking. <laughs> His whole foreign, this is like the janitor going up to the president and being like, you know what you should do about North Korea. <laughs> and the president's like, that's a good idea. <laughs> I'm going to go with janitor guy. <laughs> this is a big ask from somebody who's kind of far down the totem pole. Um, but he just... He just asks for what he knows he needs to do. He has the courage to answer the question honestly. And he allows, he allows Xerxes to answer for himself. Some of you answer for people before they even get a chance. You say six instead of 12 because I think Todd's going to say no to 12. So I just say six. Who knows what Todd would say? That's between him and God. Like, let God be God, let Todd be Todd. <laughs> I didn't try to rhyme there. Um, but, like, let people answer for themselves. Let people answer. Just Sometimes you just need to answer the question and have the courage to say what is true and let other people count their own costs. He can decide if he's willing to let you go for 12, 12 years and to use his force. That's his decision. You need to let him make that. And you see uh, what happens at the, at the end of the verse. And the king granted me what I asked. <laughs> for the good hand of my God was upon me. Yeah, I would think so. <laughs> There's no other way that this happened. He asks for 12 years off. You're like, boss, can I have 12 years off, paid leave? And not only I want you to pay for me, but I want you to give me my food, but I also want you to, to loot your own 401k so that I can build a city to keep you out later. <laughs> and the king's like, yeah, sure, that sounds good. This is unbelievable answers to prayer. Like, is there any doubt in Nehemiah's mind from this going forward? Like, I think God is in this. It's like the Great Commission we even looked at last week. Like, Jesus accentuates and punctuates the whole thing by saying, like, and lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. Like, I'm with you when you do this. Like, what more confidence do you need? Like, what more confidence do you need to go make disciples than Jesus saying, like, when you do that, I'm with you. You don't have to doubt at all. Whenever you try to make disciples, whenever you try to teach people and immerse them in the things of God, I'm with you. At this point, Nehemiah's confidence has to be at, like, an all-time high, I would think. But there's one thing, one uh, other thing you have to keep in mind. It's caution. It'll be the fifth one, caution. Look at, have you ever noticed this? The second you try and do something good, 
or something, right? Like resistance meets you right away. <laughs> like the morning you wake up and be like, I'm going to be more patient with my kids today. That's the morning, like they set the piano on fire. <laughs> You're like, God. Like, it's like, Lord, give me patience, but later. <laughs> you know, please. Or can you just give it to me right now and all in one chunk because I can't, I can't learn patience. It's too hard. Like the second you try and build, rebuild something broken, you will get resistance because the devil doesn't like it. And the people around you are just like you. Like Nehemiah, like Nehemiah was surrounded by people who live in Judah who up until yesterday have been living with 141 years of broken walls and just kind of gotten used to it. Just like Nehemiah was. Up until this day, God broke his heart over it. So Nehemiah needs to have the patience to realize, hey, just yesterday I was you. And now I'm trying to convince you to be like I am now. So just a word of caution when you run in, like you will get resistance and it's not a sign you're doing something wrong. It's a sign that you're doing something good, something right. Uh, look at like verses 9 and 10. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave their letters to them. The king had sent with me officers and army and horsemen, so he's coming with an entourage. Um, but when Senbalat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, servant heard this, the servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Senbalat and Tobiah are going to be the bad guys <laughs> for the rest of this book. Their names will pop up a lot. The second Nehemiah tries to do something right, the second he tries to rebuild, he's like, okay, let's do this. I'm committed. I have confessed my sin. I've got a plan. I've got courage. The second you try and do something right, have you noticed this in your own heart? The second you try and fix some broken habit, the, the day you decide I'm going to be gracious towards that parent who's been harsh with me, they like do something, they say something really hurtful. You're like, man, I'm trying here. I'm just, I, I just, can you throw me a bone? Can you make this easier than it has to be? And many times, when you try and fix something broken, you initially meet resistance. And so just a word of caution to your hearts so that you don't become discouraged or brokenhearted the moment you start trying. The second you start trying, expect there to be difficulty. You're not doing it wrong. You're doing something right. That's why you're meeting resistance. Because the people around you are used to the status quo and they like things the way they are. They've gotten used to it. I mean, I, I you know, hear countless stories of salt company students who come home from break and be like, Mom, Dad, I really love Jesus now, and I love the Bible. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I want you to have enough Jesus that you don't get somebody pregnant, but not so much Jesus that you go die in Africa. Okay, somewhere in between. <laughs> Can we do that? You're going to get breaks from people that you never expected. Just like Nehemiah got help from people he never would have imagined, Xerxes is funding this whole expedition, you're going to get pushback from people you never imagined. And you just need to know that on the front end. You're going to get pushback. So Nehemiah, I'm going to summarize the rest of this. Nehemiah kind of goes, he, he arrives. He goes out at night and kind of checks out the situation. He's like, okay, I have this plan in my head, but will this actually work? <laughs> so he goes around and inspects the gates, and he rides his little donkey around. And some gates are too, too short, so he can't get through with his donkey. It's kind of funny. But it's like, it's his journal. He's just like noting these little things. Like, and you're going to find that along the way. He'll just point out stuff periodically because it's his journal. He does what he wants. <laughs> you're the one reading his journal. Um, and he just points out these little things like his donkey couldn't fit through the gate, and I think it's hilarious. Um, so he comes, and he's got this plan because he wants to know, like, before I tell everybody, here's the plan, here's the big, you know, move that truck, you know, whatever. Before I give the big reveal, <laughs> he wants to make sure it's going to work. And so he's got it figured out. He's like, okay, I've done the math, did you do, got the man, got the trees. Okay, so now he's ready to tell everybody. Because everybody, there's kind of gossip mill going around town, like, what's new? I doing here? What's he doing? And so he unveils his plan. He's like, we're going to build this wall, man. <laughs> we're going to rebuild Jerusalem. We're going to make Jerusalem great again, or whatever his pitch is. I don't know. It probably was better than that. Um, there was no trucker hat involved for sure, I'm guessing. Um, and the people, verse 18, 
respond. They say, let us rise up and build. You're like, all right, let's do this. I'm in. Nehemiah, that's a good plan. And, and he says, he tells them all that happened with his prayers and Xerxes. So they're like, well, clearly God is part of this. He just sent his truck with a truck full of timber to build this thing, and it has stamped with the signet ring of like Xerxes. So clearly he's behind this. We feel pretty good about this. And so everything is great, right? Like things are on motion to rebuild. And Luke will pick up next week with the actual rebuilding of the actual wall and what that actually entails. But let me like, like end with one last C that is a glaring omission uh, from this if we don't. We just have a plan. We have all this thing to do. We know what to do. We have a plan to rebuild. One thing ingredient missing from there is the last one, and it's Jesus Christ. It's a C word if you start with Christ Jesus. <laughs> God has given us more than good advice. And that's actually really great. Like if we just had the book of Nehemiah and we're like, okay, well now I know how to fix things. I need to care more and I need to enter in and confess my sin and I need to have a plan and I need to have courage because that's, sometimes I'm, just, I'm so scared and I need to have caution that some of this pushback is part of the deal and it's just the way things work out. More than good advice, we need good news. Because... I don't know if you're aware of this, but the, the walls of Jerusalem and the temple is no longer even there now. Yes, they're going to succeed and rebuild it, but it just gets destroyed again later. They're the, they're, they're the kind of people, like the problem is bigger than just can we rebuild a wall? Like can I build back my sexual purity? Can I build back that relationship? Can I win back and take turf back? Like the problem is bigger than that because we're the kind of people who break stuff. So the problem isn't just can I fix a wall? There's still a deeper problem because you broke it in the first place. And sometimes even just by accident, we're those kind of people. And so we need more than good advice. If that was the case, Jesus could have literally come down, said, hey, you're doing it wrong. Here's a better blueprint. Good? All right, I'm going to go back. You good? You sure? Okay, see you later. And he could have literally done that if all we needed was good advice because we just can't figure it out. We just don't know how to relate to each other, how to handle our money, or how to handle our bodies. And so he could have just come and said, oh, here's how what you're supposed to do. You've heard it said this way, but that's, somebody got that wrong. It's actually this. And then he could have gone home. But the problem is bigger than that, because Jesus didn't just come to tell us what to do. He came to die. And when he came, he knew that the problem, the brokenness, wasn't just the exterior walls. It's the inner person. Like, we're broken at a deeper level than we can just rally, rally together to fix and so when Jesus came, he actually was broken for us. And so that's why I brought the bread up here today. We're going to transition to communion. I have the verse up here from 1 Corinthians where Jesus actually mentions this. And uh, Paul's referring back to what Jesus said. And so he has this bread here. And Jesus is having a meal with his disciples right before he's about to die for them. And Paul reports it this way. He says, For I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. Like he broke the bread in front of them and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When you break this, you remember what I'm about to do. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus was broken because our problem is bigger than just the walls that are broken down. We are broken people. And he did come and he did give good advice. We need more than good advice. We need good news. And in the, the communion, we celebrate the good news that we have, that he was broken to fix something deeper than we can reach. You can't go to Lowe's and fix this thing. 
You need something bigger, something deeper, something more profound. And Jesus came to do exactly that for us. So the band's going to come up as I'm praying. When you're ready, take communion. There's gluten-free over there. Rip off a piece, dip it in the juice, and then take it and receive what Jesus has done for you, knowing that he was broken because brokenness is a problem, and Jesus came more than just to give us good advice on how we can clean ourselves up. He came to actually be broken for us so that he could present us whole and put back together. Heavenly Father, thank you for Nehemiah and people who love you, who do it because they, that's just who they are. Um, you change people, and most people are going to be like Nehemiah and that they love you and worship you. They don't serve on a church staff somewhere. They're not in vocational ministry. They just go out into the world and do their jobs, and they love you, and they try their best. And I thank you that you've given us clear instruction on how we can go about rebuilding brokenness and that there is hope that those relationships, those habits, those situations are not just uh, destined to be broken forever, but through you and your power and through these uh, plans of uh, just committing ourselves to those things, we can actually see and expect to see uh, things rebuilt. Um, and most of all, thank you that you came and died and were broken on our behalf because even if we rebuild everything, uh, it's still just a house that will be left when we pass away. It's still just a relationship that will um, be in good situation when we pass on and they say kind words about us at our funeral instead of bad things behind our back. Um, there's bigger problems than just what we see on the surface, bigger problems than just the walls that surround us. There's deep problems and you've come and you've died for those so we can have true hope, a living hope that accompanies us wherever we go, even into eternity. And it's your name we pray. Amen.